Warning, this podcast contains strong language, graphic nudity, and depictions of extreme stupidity and is meant only for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Or not, you do you. Hello and welcome to the worst podcast on Mars, also known as Freedom on First Avenue. I'm Amanda. I'm Evan and I already don't like your title. Listen, not all going to be winners. Um, this do better. Do better. This is the podcast where we talk music and we take an album and we give you the history of it and um, how it came to be and the cultural cultural significance of it. This week we're doing the Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street. But before we get into that, Evan. Amanda. Do you, have, do you have any corrections or grievances from last week? Last week's was uh, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Do you have anything to say about that one? I think I misspoke. I think I said uh, Appetite for Destruction was 86. It was 87. Okay. I do have a couple things that I want to get into, though. Okay. And I know we would normally put it in, like, I would normally do notes after culture or history. It's like when I would add stuff. Mm-hmm. But because it was related to last week's episode, I want to I wanna touch on a point that we brought up. Because we brought up... I've even forgotten the song. What is it? Money for Nothing? Mm-hmm. How you were wondering why it's Wasn't explicit. explicit and all that. Right. So I found an article on NPR from October 29th, 2010. Okay. It's called You Ask, We Answer, Parental Advisory, Parental Advisory Labels, The Criteria, and the History. Okay. Uh, looks like it was a question from James Cross... Uh, loud rock director at a community station in Plainfield, Vermont. Okay. The question was, exactly how much profanity merits a parental advisory label on albums or explicit on songs? Who sets these rules and have they changed recently? And then he goes on to say, just wanted to let you know there is no rule on this. It is completely voluntary to put a parental advisory sticker on a record. Maybe that's one of the ones you already knew, though. Ha ha. Hope I helped. So there are a couple things that I want to read through this article and mention to you. Okay. So he's talking about the, or it's talking about the MPAA for movies, which was launched in 68. Mm-hmm. Which is talking about, it kind of goes back into, what was it, the Hayes Code as what's what's labeled right. for what you can do in movies and not. So it's basically, I think... I believe it. They were talking about it in "Be Cool" with the sequel to "Get Shorty." Mm-hmm. They're talking about it. He wanted to get in the movie business, and he was talking about it. And he said that uh, to get an R rating, uh, what is it? Fuck more than once. And he said, "Fuck that." And it was a PG thirteen movie. But there's your there's your one, mm-hmm. like your one per episode. Um. Going through individual record company. This is from the RIAA, the Record Industry Association of America. Okay? Mm-hmm. And it's the Parental Advisory Label Program. So that's PAL. So here on out, it's RIAA and PAL. Okay? Yep. Individual record companies and artists decide which of their releases should receive a PAL notice indicating that the release contains explicit content. But there seems 
but there's no specific definition of explicit. The main criteria seems to be strong language or depictions of violence, sex, or substance abuse. A determination that a sound recording contains PAL content is not a statement as to whether the sound recording is or is not suitable for particular listeners, nor is the absence of any notification that a sound recording contains PAL content a statement that the sound recording is completely devoid of all references to strong language or depictions of violence, sex, or substance abuse. So it doesn't really help you. No. Um, PMRC goes into that. It was April of 95. I think we talked about that in Prince. Yes. And this is before. The Dire Series was before that. So I get, I get it. Uh, when did you say this was released? Or Dire Straits was released? What 86? month? 86. Um, I think it was 85. Oh, yes. May. I think it was May of 85. Because the PMRC was launched in April of 85. Okay. So it's probably, if it had been released six months later, after that, it might have but, gotten labeled. But was that term even a derogatory term back then where it would I, have caught it? I you don't know. know. What I mean? I don't know. But it was still, it was right after the beginning of it. So mm-hmm. I think since it was originally not released, although that leads into a whole separate issue is why some of these older albums that are marked albums that were released before that have stuff released on Apple Music. Like, I know we're going to get into it. What is the first track off of Stones? Is it Rock This Joint? I believe so. I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. I know that's marked as explicit, but that was before 85. So there's a whole... And, and the one that I listened to is the 2010 remaster. So I'm assuming, yeah, because they... That is mark, marked explicit. Yeah. And do you want to know who helped fund PMRC to start? Who? According to this, Mike Love from Beach Boys. Oh. Okay. Uh, and then it goes into the co-founders, list of recommendations. Uh, and then it had the, the Filthy 15 it's talking about, their connections. Okay, five months after, uh, record labels would put advisories on albums. Okay, that... I read something wrong. Um, they wanted all song lyrics printed on album covers, albums with explicit covers kept behind record store counters, which kind of, I mean, there were a couple Cannibal Corpse albums that were banned in other countries because of the covers. Um, and then it, it went into kind of like with TV shows, they have rated what TVM for x y and z and they have the little letters as to what like dslv i think mm-hmm. like they wanted something like that for the rating system um it's talking about zappa and john denver and twist or and d snyder um so there's really no and then there is talk about like walmart and sam's won't sell it you know they can and that they can make that decision themselves uh it's it doesn't really explain what would or what wouldn't um if there's one track that's labeled explicit the entire album needs 
the logo, even if not all the tracks are labeled as such. Mm-hmm. So there were there were a couple things that I saw that was interesting, but it didn't really explain why some are and why some aren't. Well, for me, for me, what it sounds like is that it, it's under the you know it's under the discretion of the recording artist and the label. And if that term wasn't considered to be derogatory necessarily, then they're not going to go back 30 years later and put one on there. Yeah. And and here's, I'm going to jump ahead to Stones. And since it's a good transition, I may steal some of your information, but, you know, deal with it. I actually tried to bring something to the table this time. Okay. What is it? Rock this joint. He said, mm-hmm. "That's actually not the only song on there that probably should be labeled explicit." Right. Because there's, I went through it. Uh, there's shit in four of them, and there's something else in Casino Boogie that probably should get marked. Mm-hmm. But and the only reason I realize that is because I pull up the lyrics and I'm right. looking through. I was like, "Wait a minute, how is how is this?" labeled but this is not labeled mm-hmm. but that that's a whole separate discussion as to why some things are labeled and why some yeah. aren't because i don't think we had the resources to really dive into what right is classified well yeah thanks so that that was good information because it was like a legitimate question i had you know it's if they if dire straits made that song now they probably wouldn't put that word in the song i think when they perform it i think to a certain point after that they're like we're not doing it yeah yeah which i will i'll see if i can find any information on that while you're going so you want me to get started yep okay so like i said we're doing rolling stones exile on main street released may 12th 1972 and it's number six on this rock and roll hall of fame list i think this is we've done one which was sergeant pepper's from the Beatles. Two was Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and three was Thriller, Michael Jackson. I don't think we've done four or five yet. Hold on. I have the I have the list in front of me. We have not... Four is Led Zeppelin four and five is the Joshua Tree. Yes, we haven't done those yet. And we've done number eight and number ten. Okay. So, I know sometimes you do a little bit of research on this or you may know something already. Have you done any research on this album not really i mean i i may have scrolled through and read a couple things but nothing like in-depth research okay this is going to be a long episode because the story behind this is just bananas it is batshit crazy so buckle up we are going on a ride um, Exile on Main Street was the Stones' 10th studio album and their first double LP. It came after a very dark period that began in 1969. Brian Jones, who had recently been fired from the band, was found dead in his pool. Then, towards the end of the same year, they hosted the Altamont Speedway Free Concert, in which four people had died, one of which was a murder that was captured live on film. Is that the Hells Angels one? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the middle of all this, their albums Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers were kind of bombs. 
So just all around. Sticky Fingers good. was the one right before this. Yep. The whole story surrounding the creation of Main Street has now kind of turned into the stuff of legends. They fled England due to the tax laws and took shelter in a mansion that was used by the Gestapo during World War II. There were, I read what, that. What country? I'm assuming Germany? France. France. Um, they found, there were, like, swastikas carved into, like, the banisters and just, like, random places they found. But, yeah, it was used. Okay. By the Gestapo. Well, um, I'm sure it's not the, because we talked months ago, we talked, um, Downward Spiral, Downward Spiral was recorded at the Shannon Tate house. Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate. That's what I thought I said. But it's still, you, so it's not the first instance of... Like just being locked up in a in in a weird place, but it's yeah. Although this mansion sounded big, the group were primarily banished to the crowded basement turned studio, with electricity being hijacked from the French railway system. Mick Jagger was also absent quite a bit as he was spending time with his wife Bianca because she was pregnant. The house was filled with lots of people most notably drug dealers, who gave the studio a steam bath slash opium den vibe, and Keith Richards, who, as one article noted, quote, the kind of person a crisis would want in a crisis, <laughs> held most of the control. So, okay. Yeah, okay, uh, we'll come back to this. Using all of this, they somehow harnessed the power of pandemonium. That was another quote I saw. It was recorded over a three-year time frame. So, so then this was started before Sticky Fingers? Because if, if this was, what did you say, 72? So, let me go back up. Um, I scrolled down too far. 72. Okay, Sticky Fingers would have been before this, so that's probably 71. So this was started right after their concert? So it, I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about everything but essentially and i i kind of skimmed over this they switched management they <laughs> yeah it was that they they left deca yes there's a there's a whole fun story with the end of yes with what they did to deca and by saying this was recorded over a three-year period some of the songs on this album were written while they were still under deca okay. and just not used for like sticky fingers or let it bleed so it's i think sticky fingers would have been before after they left Decca. They, point is. Point yeah. is, they started writing some of the songs before they actually got to this mansion recording yeah. a few years back under the old management. And so there was like a lawsuit trying to get the money and, and everything. I mean... It's a, it's a clusterfuck. Yes. So you had... I loved that, that quote, that Keith Richards is the kind of person a crisis would want in a crisis. That, I mean, he is just chaos, and he was the one in control here. It's like me putting you in in control of everything. It's just, nobody would think to do that. You don't, you don't take charge of things. You don't do things. You just show up. Yep, that's what I do here. <laughs> and so it just, and, and Mick was not the only one who was, and I think I say this later on, he was not the only one really absent. The group fled england they're living in france but they're all spread over france they're okay. not all together keith was the one that rented this mansion 
they're not nearby. I think one I, I thought it said was like three hours away. Okay. So like the recordings just was kind of like who showed up when they show, you know, whenever they showed up. There, there've been other right. albums we've run into where it's kind of like yes, just somebody. Yes, I will talk about that. So here's the story of the tax laws. The group thought their management was taking care of paying their taxes, so they spent their money freely, like very freely, <laughs> like Keith Richards freely. <laughs> yes, I'm not gonna say like snorting it up their nose freely, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> um, at the time, the Prime Minister was Harold Winston, and under his Labour government, the highest earners were, were to pay a super tax of up to 98%. Therefore, the Stones owed millions of pounds in taxes, money they didn't have. Hey, money for nothing. Yeah. So this led the group fleeing to France before the end of the financial year in order to have the profits be tax-exempt. So as a... It was more of a, a financial decision, not just like, oh, shit, we owe this much money, we need to leave. It was a way to kind of like, they found a loophole where they were able to leave and make money that was going to be exempt from paying taxes so they could kind of get, get out a little from bit. A, yes. Yeah, okay. But I thought that was, it was weird. But that is where exile comes from, the title. Okay. I thought it was freedom. Goodbye. Um, so I found a quote from Keith Richards that describes how he and Jagger are as people. Chaos. It, and if I hope you come to the same conclusion that I did when I read this. Okay. And I said this to two other people, and they agreed with me, okay? So, quote, Mick needs to know what he's going to do tomorrow. Me, I'm just happy to wake up and see who's hanging around. Mick's rock, I'm roll. End quote. So I am Keith and you are Mick. I said there is no other quote in this world that perfectly describes his marriage. I need plans. Evan literally just shows up. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm going to hang out with you today. Yes. Um, and I think this quote can apply to so many people I know, like I said, including us. Um, but it was an interesting piece of yin and yang that I thought was nice to see from someone inside that dynamic. So here's Keith, who lived it. I don't know how he's still alive, but he lived it. And and he's saying, you know, Mick was one way, I was the other, but we worked together. So it was very interesting. I have to find this quote because I will explain to you how he was still alive. So continue, and I will interrupt you here in a bit. So he might not have realized it at the time, but it's interesting when you can realize that about yourself and someone that you're close with. Um, however, it really wasn't this way when it came to Main Street. Jagger just kind of went with the flow, rolling along with the punches and and just going along with Richards as everyone else just kind of did the same thing, including their producer, the session player, studio techs, the record executive, and everyone else just hanging around. This resulted in a very chaotic and messy way of recording where they would just go along with how Richards worked. So they would play something for about 20 minutes then let it sit for a while, play for another 20-ish minutes, and so on. For example, the song Happy was recorded in a single take after Richards woke up and gathered only those who were also awake as it was not in the morning. And saxophone player Bobby Keys said the whole record was about as unrehearsed as a hiccup. 
Case in point, the lyrics for I Just Want to See His Face were made up by Jagger on the spot right as they were recording. So just complete and utter chaos. And they were all just kind of going with the flow that Richard, Richard set. You know, Mick was very much, I need control. I need to know what's going on. I need to have a plan. Which is exactly like the person you are looking at right now, Evan. <laughs> I, I need to know what's going on. I need to have, I'm, I'm a planner. Mick was that way. Keith, very much not. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't find the exact quote. So it could be slightly different than what I'm about to tell you. But I think the reason he's still alive is, I believe he said at some point that he never took more drugs than necessary. Right. <laughs> so, like, he wouldn't, like, if this much coke will get him high, he's not going to put in a little bit more to get a better high. You know, no one can see the space between your fingers because it's an audio medium. Still. If he needs an ounce of coke to I don't, keep going, he's I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the proper measurements. So that's you why just I throw was. throw one in there. He's not going to do eight pounds of coke just because. When seven pounds will do the trick. There you go. Um, the album they created was a mix of soul, gospel, blues, and country. And it reflects the tensions the group members were feeling at the time. On top of all the issues they had going into, into this, the drug use and partying got a lot stronger, with this mansion turning into one big party house. Different people would be revolving in and out, creating turmoil within the group by forming bonds with different members. Then, those people would leave, others would come in, a new bond would be formed that would exclude someone else, and the cycle would repeat. However, the heroin use remained steady. It was so bad that one day, burglars walked out of the house with nine of Richard's guitars, Keys' sax, and Bill Wyman's bass during broad daylight. This was all while everyone else was just watching TV in the living room. <laughs> Eventually, the police raided the mansion and Richards was charged with, pos with possession, resulting in banishment from France for two years. The band then exiled themselves to America, where the album was eventually finished in L.A. at Sunset Sound Studios. Okay. So, are you hanging in with me? Because I, I told you, going into it is is crazy. They had... You know, kind of, I don't want to say like down on their luck, but they had a lot of bad events going into this. Then they fled the country for the to the tax laws because they owed a shit ton of money they didn't have. And everybody was just kind of doing what Jagger or uh, Richards wanted to do. Hardly anybody was around. They were in an old Nazi mansion. I just like the, hey, let's go record. Let's not wake anybody else up though because it's two in the morning. Yeah, and that's it. It just was like whenever people were up, and it just goes record. So here's my next bit. It it gets. I don't want to say it gets worse, but we're not done. <laughs> on top of all of that, a quick note on the overall sound for this album. Which, as a side note, we we did listen to the remastered one, and I'm gonna come back to that. Because that, that is important later on that we listen to the remastered one. Okay. Okay. 
I mentioned that it was recorded in their basement, which was hot and humid as hell. Oh, and did I mention that it had a dirt floor? Sometimes the temperature would reach 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 38 degrees Celsius. So that's one of the reasons so many of the recordings happened during the night. They all would get up, record at night because it was, it wasn't as hot. Yeah. You know, the dirt floor kicked up a lot of dust. So everything, including the mics, were very dusty. The humidity made the guitars go out of tune often. And what was most interesting to me was the way they did it. The basement was small in terms of room size, but there were a lot of rooms. So the band members were kind of scattered all over the place and they used a mobile recording studio connected by leads that ran through the halls and out the windows. Their engineer had to often run from room to room to communicate everything and not everyone was always on hand. So the producer, Jimmy Miller, would play drums and other percussion items to get going. It was a chaotic mess. So they weren't even, a lot of times they weren't even in the same room doing it, but they were, some of them were doing it together. Okay. It's kind of like the White Album where it's like. No, no, finish your thought. Where it's like, you're here, you're here, let's do this, let's do this part. Continuing my notes. Sound familiar? This, in a way, was the Stones' White Album. (laughs) When we talked about the White Album for the Beatles, I mentioned how it was kind of their turning point. And how we saw the band kind of go downhill after that, breaking up only a few albums later. With Main Street, it was Richard's final big burst before he just became almost 100% heroin. And he noticeably became more detached from the rest of the band during performances. After this album, Jagger would start to carry more of the load for the group, but their sound would never be the same. So exactly like you said, it it was a chaotic thing and... this was almost almost the same story for the Beatles, where they just were kind of recording with not necessarily like whoever was there, but they they didn't all do it together yeah. as a four. It was they pick pick and choose. There were a lot of other people around, you know, people creating these bonds with some like that's when Yoko came in in the album, and it was some people didn't like that, you know, and then shortly after like. You know, there were, you could hear the tension on the album. And then shortly after, the Beatles kind of died out. Very similar here. And I thought, thought that was weird. And I'm glad you picked up on it. Because that was immediately what I thought. Oh, ready? Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> the, the cover art was created using a collage of circus performers taken by Robert Frank around 1950. Around his great... Uh, as well as grainy stills of the band and a mural dedicated to Joan Crawford. The pictures of the band were taken on Main Street in L.A., bringing the Main Street part to the exile. Have you zoomed into that photo at all? No. Because I I had it pulled up because I was looking at the track list. There's one in the top left. Uh, it looks like the guy has three oranges in his mouth. Yep, I and have I, seen that I one. saw that and I was like, all right. <laughs> um. The cover itself was punk before punk was a thing. According to Sex Pistols' John Lydon, the Stones' exile package set the image of punk. When was... Never mind the bollocks, then. You can look it up. But I thought that was interesting. So we have, like, here's a major influence for the punk scene. Even if we're just talking about the album cover. So I thought that was very cool. 
Sweet Virginia is a bit of an oddity for the group. You got your hand raised, what? No, never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols with 77. And this was? 72. So it came? After. I know, I just (laughs) didn't know what year it was. I thought it was earlier than that. I was going to say like 74. Sweet Virginia is a bit, in a bit of an oddity for the group, and it's one of the only songs to feature Richards on vocals. It's the only song by the Stones sung by Richards to chart on the Billboard Hot 100. The song Casino Boogie was not intended to make sense. I really like the story here. Why are you smiling? Go ahead. It was written as cut-ups. The band scribbled lyrics at random then pick them one by one, piecing a song together. So they would just write a small phrase or one or two words, threw them in a hat, picked out, it just pieced it together, here's a song. Which is very interesting. I'm wondering if that's ever been performed then. I'll go go down a rabbit hole and look into that. There you go. Some of the more notable names of the floaters that went in and out of this house during this time were author William S. Burroughs, Screenwriter Terry Southern and musician Graham Parsons. I know that one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, other notable names had a heavy influence on the Stones while they were recording. Aretha Franklin's soul roots can be heard in the songs Tumbling Dice, Loving Cup, Let It Loose, and Shine a Light. The song Sweet Black Angel was written about civil rights activist Angela Davis, who was arrested in 1970 on charges of murder, kidnapping, and criminal conspiracy, which is a wild story within itself. That I don't think we have time to get into. We do not, but that I I read it, and that is it has, also batshit crazy. It has not been performed. Okay. Fun fact: the song "Turd on the Run" has never been performed live. How many are there on here? Eighteen. I think so. There have only been eleven that have been played, and two of them have only been played once. Okay. So that was everything I had on the history. And I'm sure there's more out there. I spent probably four hours on just the history alone. Okay. I have a, I have a question for yes. you. If you can pull up the track list in front of you. Okay. This is according to setlist.fm. Okay. What song off that album do you think has been played the most times? What song off this album? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say Happy. Happy is second on the list with 536. What's the first one? Tumbling Dice. Really? With 1121. And then there are a couple that are 329, 205, 154, 125, and then 22, 21, 3, 1, and 1. Okay. Right. So, you ready for the cultural impact? I suppose. I've only got five points here, because there was so much on the back. Are you bald? Five points, Fids? Yes. There there was so much on the crazy Backstory? Story, yeah, that I didn't find a lot here, but here's what I found. The initial response to Main Street was just so-so. Now it's considered to be a landmark for contemporary music and the best work from the group. In his 1972 review, John Perry described the album as puzzlement with qualified praise. Jagger himself didn't care for the album, calling it lousy with no concerted effort of intention. 
duh. <laughs> However, now that time has passed, he's gotten more in favor of the album and even supported its re-release in 2010, that remastered one. Exile was a top 10 charting album in several countries, hitting the number one spot in six, including the US, UK, and Canada. The song Tumbling Dice hit the top 10 all over the world. Which is probably why that's the one that's... Mm-hmm. Singles released. Happy, which reached number 22 on the charts. All Down the Line and Tumbling Dice. And Tumbling Dice reached number 7 on the charts. There was no charting information for All Down the Line. Sales. Okay. Normally I tell you this hit like, you know, 8 times platinum and it's certified gold or won a Grammy or we, you know. I okay. I try to give you that stuff. Here's my guess. Hmm. It sold a lot. I had a hard time finding information on sales, which surprised me. If this was supposedly the best Stones album, why couldn't I find stuff on sales? I eventually found it and was really surprised that the total sales were just under 1.5 million. It's only been certified platinum in Australia, the UK, and the US, and gold in Italy and New Zealand, with the earliest date of any of these certifications being... 2000 which was the one in the u.s so all of that really surprised me i mean i know it's got to take a long time to sell a lot of copies but for it to be out for that long before it gets its first platinum certification yeah and and it's supposed to be their best and i know you i know you don't agree with this but i i just went to wiki real quick because they have a they have a certification thing (laughs) at the bottom excuse me so, yeah, it doesn't look like there's a lot because I'm seeing the platinum in the U.S. and the U.K. and then gold in New Zealand, Italy, yeah. and then the platinum in Australia. Yeah. Um, my last point here. This album was the inspiration for many artists, including Liz Fair, Alabama 3. I'm assuming that's Fish, but I forgot the H on the end. And P-H-I-S? Yes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and Pussy Galore. But... Goldfinger came out in 64. Okay, so I'm going to just give you my sources. Okay. Like I said, it was, it was, I had a hard time finding any real solid information that's like, this influenced, you know, this person, and this is the birth of this, and, you know, without, without this album, we wouldn't have X, Y, and Z, and it it was, it was kind of difficult because of the batshit insane story. (laughs) That you find. Yes. So let me get into my sources. Thank you to Exile on Main Street Turns 50. How the Rolling Stones' critically divisive album became rock folklore by Beth Daly. How did you say that word? Divisive? I've always heard of it as divisive. Okay. I guess send send me an email and tell me how. Get on dictionary.com because we had to do that a couple weeks ago. By Beth Daly, published May 12, 2022. Thank you to The Stones and the True Story of Exile on Main Street by Sean O'Hagan, published April 24, 2010 on TheGuardian.com. Thank you to We Rank the Songs on the Rolling Stones' double LP Exile on Main Street by Staff, (laughs) (laughs) published May 12, 2020 on FarOutMagazine.co.uk. Thank you to Number 14, The Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street, 1972 by... Brett Schweetz. Uh, <laughs> Newsweek. That was June 28th on rs500albums.com. 
Thank you too. The Rolling Stones on Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street's Influences Explained by Simon Harper, published May 17th, 2022 on youdiscovermusic.com. Thank you too. The Story of the Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street by Colleen Murphy, no date on classicalbumsundays.com. Thank you too. How Exile on Main Street Killed the Rolling Stones by Jack Hamilton, published May 25th, 2010 on theatlantic.com. Thank you too. Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, a track-by-track guide by Allison Rapp, published May 12th, 2022 on ultimateclassicrock.com. Thank you too. 50 years ago today, the Rolling Stones released Exile on Main Street, uh, no author, published May 12th, 2022 on nightswithalicecooper.com. Yeah, I think he does have a radio show. Thank you to The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street by This Day in Music staff, published February 3rd, 2022 on thisdayinmusic.com. Thank you to Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street album cover, 1972, no author, no date, on artcenter.edu. Thank you to The Story Behind, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street album artwork from Louder, um, published November 20th, 2022. 2016 on loudersound.com and thank you to exile on main street by the rolling stones sales and awards no author no date bestsellingalbums.org okay so that was my resources and evan paused it real quick to play the word divisive for me and he's saying i i've heard it as divisive um apparently the robot that lives in the internet says is divisive so i hope the way i said it creates division between <laughs> Division. Division. But, um, Evan, why don't you give me your reviews? Okay, I guess I'll keep it short because I don't really have much to say on the album. Uh, I had my notepad somewhere and you you threw to me before I was ready, so I'm just trying to (laughs) fill some time real quick. Um, I don't think I was particularly impressed with it. You know, I don't... I think the more that I listened to it, I was like, I don't know if I'm a Stones fan. You know, there, there's nothing... I know some of the hits, but I listened to this as like, nothing really stood out. I like the story behind it now that I have that information, but it... Yeah, isn't that crazy? But I love that story. But I had a I had a couple notes. Uh, I got a ZZ Top vibe. Oh, crap. From... What happened? It went blank. Oh, from Shake Your Hips. Okay. Um, and I know I mentioned it earlier that Rocks Off isn't even the only one with profanity. So that was really my notes on the album. But now I want to listen to it again now with some of that in mind. And, and go, not necessarily tonight, but you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed to listening to bits and pieces here and there again mm-hmm. and seeing if something changes because i want to go through some of these ones that we've talked about before now like um ziggy stardust that's because i'm going through all of bowie so i'll be listening to that again and you know maybe my opinion on that changes the more information that you have the later on down the line if you like if we get removed so far removed from it and you go into it with a fresh set of ears mm-hmm. you know maybe it changes but maybe like a b minus because okay. it because that is going to that is a very good lead into my question that i'm going to ask you towards the end of this okay when we're done okay so that was short so yeah and i'm not keeping anything off of it okay 
So no no real break for you to before you just keep on going. All right. So I like the Stones, but in passing. Um, I've always been more into the Beatles, so I've never really given the Stones a fair chance. But thinking about it, it's just, I think it's more like, my dad liked the Beatles. So growing up, I listened to the Beatles. And I think I just kind of lean that way because, like, I I prefer early Beatles stuff, but that's what my dad liked. The the poppier stuff. Yeah, so I've never really, like, you know, in terms of the British invasion, you know, I've I've just kind of gravitated toward Beatles, but... Um, going into this, I didn't know any tracks by name, but after reading the insane story behind it, I was really excited to listen, and I'm happy that I got my real start with the Stones in this album. I did recognize Happy, and after reading about it, I did notice the different sound in the voice, because that was the one I said Richards was singing. Okay. Before, I never really paid much attention and, to and it. And it's possible that since I didn't have all this information, I was listening, I was like, and I, it didn't even right. register. Right. So after not knowing much of the Stones, except their major hits that always play on the classic rock stations, and who Mick Jagger is, and Keith Richards is, and, and ponder how in the hell Keith Richards is still alive, I really wasn't sure what to expect here. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones are the two biggest bands that brought on the British invasion. Invasion, And uh, uh, there are so many that will argue the Stones are better. So after hearing about the background, I was really intrigued to hear it. And I really liked it. It was bluesy and gritty. And I really enjoyed it as a whole. While nothing stood out as needing to have it as part of my favorites playlist... Um, I did add the whole album to my library. It's really good, and I feel as though after several listens, I'll be adding a song or two to that playlist. I want to. I wonder if listening to the LP version would make a difference for me. Maybe, and I'm gonna. I'll just skip. I was gonna have that in my fi- final thought. I'll just say it now. So the version we had, like I said, was the remastered one. So I'm very interested to get my hands on the vinyl copy just to hear how dirty it sounded. I knew the sound was too clean and crisp, especially after what I read. So I am interested in in that. But I gave it an A only because I didn't add anything to my favorites playlist. Should I even bother? Just keep going. Okay, so overall, here's my final thoughts. Overall, it's a great album. Not being a Stones fan initially, I can't say it's their best because I really don't have anything to compare it to. But I will be checking out all of their stuff and buying that famous tongue t-shirt that tongue logo. okay do you know who does i do you know who designed that uh-uh. i believe it's andy warhol really i'm not surprised no because that's that's around the same time frame um, i saw one at walmart yesterday it was pink and i didn't want it so i almost bought it but well i'm going like i said i'm going through all these catalogs and all that i will send you rolling stones after i send you the black sabbath one and maybe you'll actually get to rolling stones <laughs> yeah at some point so, Evan, that brings us to this day in history. Well, before we get into that, I'm just going to ask you my question now. Okay. And you you, you, know, you got to learn to be like Keith Richards and just kind of go with the flow. You give me shit because I accidentally say, okay, you got a question. You're like, that's not how the way we do things. You got to do this day in history first. So this day, I actually get it right. And there's no deep question. That's how you sound. Prove it. <laughs> 
You gotta be more like Keith Richards. You just gotta kind of go with the flow, and you gotta do a lot of drugs. Okay, I was gonna say, bring on the heroin. <laughs> so, well, this is a short one. Do you think? So, well, I guess it's multiple questions. Stones or Beatles? Right, as a whole, right now I still say Beatles. Okay. Do you think the Stones overstayed their welcome? Because they're still a thing. They're, this is, what did you say, number 10 or 12? This was 10. Because they, they put stuff out. They put out a, I think, a blues cover album within the last five years. So they're still doing stuff. Or do you think they should have stopped after this? I think th- this is personal opinion. Okay. 100% personal opinion. I think if you enjoy what you're doing... And it's still selling. If people are still buying it, put it out. Yeah, I mean, if if you're yeah, if you're still able to put out good content and people are actually listening to it, then yeah, keep going. Or like if you're if you're still writing stuff, like Cornwell has put out Patricia or Stephen King still writing books. Mm-hmm. You know, still selling. It's. Do you think Stephen King's current material is as good as like the shining and it and cujo some of his favorite stuff is more current but you know what i mean it's some of my favorite stuff of his is more current yes but you know what i mean it's after do you think they all say they're welcome yes do you think they should have whether or not how much they had in the tank you know if they've still got 15 albums worth of stuff left do you think after this and maybe one or two more they should have been done mm. because if, if if you're putting it in the context of most people will say maybe the stones are better quality but the beatles are a better band you know what i mean it's i i don't know enough of stones other work to to say yeah. You know, it's just because, like, let's take Beatles, just because I prefer the earlier songs doesn't mean the rest of the work is shit. Well... And they just... Could they have done several more years? Probably. But they they didn't want to be together anymore. So they didn't want to well, yeah, be and a you're, group. And you're saying with Keith Richards kind of detaching himself from the band and a little they, bit. they broke up for a while. And then they got back together and worked it out and created more music which is fine and and maybe had you know john lennon not have been murdered they would have done that before george harrison died because i think i think there was talks that they were actually supposed to or they were considering performing on saturday night live i I heard that and that's six years later Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah in that range because that was early to mid Beatles was early 70s, Saturday Night Live was mid-70s. Yeah, so it's it's a good question. A lot of your questions are, you know, what if kind yeah. of questions. And it's it's hard for me to say. And like I said in my review, there are some people who are diehard Stones fans. They're like, Stones are great, Beatles suck. But that's your opinion. It's all subjective. You know, it's... There's no, like, fact in that. And if you take, 
if you say, well, be, the Rolling Stones have so, sold a lot more than the Beatles ever did, well, duh, because they've, they've been, been around, around for, for yeah. well, almost an extra 40 com- years. Yeah, that's not a fair comparison. So it's it, it's it's hard to to answer that. Okay. I, I, I don't think that, you know, I can ever say, you know, they should have given it up a long time ago. I mean, they're healthy ish they're doing <laughs> ish they're you know they're doing what they love to do and it's people are still buying it so i think that you know let, let them okay i've got one more question for you okay so let's assume that the beatles actually did touring for sergeant peppers okay which we we got into that revolver was their last tour would you knowing what you know about this album and what your opinions on this album were would you rather go to a stones tour for this album or a beatles tour for sergeant peppers beatles just because right now i still enjoy beatles a lot more yeah okay. there's nothing i didn't have anything really good this time it was just kind of some opinions yeah so now we can get into this day if you are ready. Oh, yep. Go ahead. Okay. So March thirty first, correct? Yes. Okay. March thirty first. I'm gonna give you the information, and then you're gonna tell me the year. Okay. Okay. RCA Victor introduced the forty five RPM single record, which had been in development for nearly ten years. The seven inch disc was designed to compete with the long plane record introduced by Columbia a year earlier. Both formats offered better fidelity and longer playing time than the 78 RPM record that was currently in use. Advertisements for new record players boasted that with 45 records, the listener could hear up to 10 records with speedy, silent, hardly noticeable changes. Okay. So what year was that? 54. 1949. Okay. Okay. 1957. Billed as the nation's only atomic-powered singer, this artist played two shows at the Olympia in Detroit, Michigan in front of 24,000 fans in 1957. Uh, James Brown. Elvis. Okay. James Brown probably wasn't... No, because... In the early 60s, maybe? Yeah, I mean, that may have been a little early, but that wasn't a bad guess. Um, 1958. Chuck Berry's rock and roll classic, Johnny B. Good, was released. Okay. Entered the U.S. charts six weeks later and peaked at number... Two. Eight. Uh, the Beatles played their first gig in the south of England when they appeared at the subscription rooms Stroud on the same bill as the Rebel Rousers... Tickets cost five shillings, or the equivalent of 70 cents, in what year? 58. 62. Okay. Filming for A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles played a live television performance in front of a studio of screaming fans, including Phil Collins, in 1964. Okay. 1967. Jimi Hendrix set fire to his guitar live on stage for the first time when he was appearing in what country? 
the United States, wasn't it? It was like a Newport Music Festival? England. England. It was at the Astoria. Oh, okay. The uh, first night of a 24-date tour with the Walker Brothers, Cat Stevens, and Engelbert Humperdinck. Okay. Uh, I vaguely remember talking about that when we did our Hendrix episode. Sold at auction for £280,000 at a 2008 London auction of rock memorabilia. Uh, 1972. The Beatles' official fan club closed. The Beatles' monthly magazine had ceased three years previously. Okay. 1976. Led Zeppelin released Presence, their seventh studio album. Presence has now been certified three times platinum by the recording by the RIAA, RIAA for U.S. sales in excess of three million copies. So just in the U.S., Presence has sold more than Exile on Main Street has sold, period. Mm-hmm. 1990. German and Italian production team Snap had their first UK number one single with The Power. The track has been featured in many films, including Coyote Ugly, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, <laughs> Bruce Almighty, and The Fisher King. Like That seems like a very wide range of movies. I, okay, I know of this story. 1994, Madonna appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman from New York City. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. The network had to delete 13 offending words from the interview before the show aired. Madonna also handed Letterman a pair of her panties and told, them, told him to sniff them. He declined and stuffed them into his desk drawer. And then we'll get into birthdays. Okay. Shirley Jones, American singer and actress who appeared in the well-known musical films Oklahoma and Carousel. She also played the lead role of Shirley Partridge, the widowed mother of five children, in the musical situation comedy TV series The Partridge Family. Okay. We're doing birthdays. I know. Okay. Thinking. I thought I smelled something burning. Oh. Uh, 38. 34. You were close. American jazz musician Herb Alpert. I thought it was, I always thought it was Albert. It's Alpert. Most associated with the group Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. That's the one with the whipped cream. Mm-hmm. 38. 37. If this next one's not 38, I'm going to throw my phone at you. Uh, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to try and pronounce his name. I, I don't know how, how to actually say it. Uh, Thys or Thys Van Leer, organ flute with Dutch rock band Focus, who had the 1973 UK number four single Sylvia and the 1973 US number nine single Hocus Pocus. You'd know that song if you heard it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want you to really think about this one. 38. 48. <laughs> Yeet my phone. Uh, Angus Young, Scottish-born Australian guitarist with ACDC, known for his energetic performances in schoolboy uniform stage outfits. 50. 55. We're going to do a little bit of a jump. Jack Antonoff, American singer-musician of the indie pop band Fun, who scored the 2012 U.S. number one single, We Are Young. 78. 
84. Oh, Jesus Christ. I told you we were going to do a bit a of a jump. A bit of a jump. Yeah. It's just a jump to the left. And then a step to the right. Okay, do you have any other birthdays for me? No. All right, so we ready to close this out then? Yes. So thank you for listening. Um, find us on Facebook at The Worst Podcast on Mars. Find us on inner, inner, inner and Twistagram is what I was just Find us on the internet. Instagram, <laughs> Instagram and Twitter. Outstagram. <laughs> I've not been drinking. This is strawberries and cream, Dr. Pepper. Zero sugar. Zero sugar. Um, find us on Instagram and Twitter at Worst Pod on Mars. Send us an email, worstpodonmars at gmail.com. Um, sub by, say hi. Give us a suggestion because on Tuesdays we do short episodes where it's a little bit of background, just a little bit of background and uh, reviews. So give us a suggestion for an album you'd like us to listen to. Um, come back. Nope. Please give us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to. So you don't want them to come back? I do want them to come back. Come back next week when we're doing Stone Temple Pilots Core. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the worst podcast on Mars, also known as Freedom on First Avenue. I'm Amanda. I'm Evan. And I already don't like your title. <laughs> Listen, not all of them are going to be winners, okay? Um, this week, we're talking about the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. But before we get into that, I totally fucked up. Can we start over? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>